Most couples come to therapy with one objective. They say they need help with communication. When we say communication, we're usually describing how we express ourselves and indeed how we express our inner world is a huge determinant of the quality of our relationships. But today we're going to focus on the other side of communication, the silent partner, which is just as important as what we're saying. Today, we're going to look at how we receive what we're hearing, which is also called listening. Welcome to Substance, not Psychobabble. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. If you want to follow me on social media, my Instagram handle is Vanessa the Therapist. Very simple. So here's what I hope you'll do with this episode. Okay, first, I want you to share it. Well, listen to it first. But then I want you to share it. And I want you to share it with the people in your life that you listen to, your spouse, your partner, a friend. Maybe share it with a parent, someone who you want to listen to you. Maybe share it with a child who's old enough to grasp this. Why? Because this episode has the potential to change your life. And I know what I just said, and it's a big claim, and it's not coming from my ego. It's coming from over 10 years of clinical practice and seeing the moments in therapy when someone actually starts listening to their partner, listening to their child, listening to their parent, or frankly, listening to themselves. Listening can change your life. You can alter and improve the substance, the arc, the depth of your relationships by simply changing the way you listen. So this week, that is our focus. Listening is the silent partner, but silent does not mean passive. So this week, we're going to talk about what it means to actively listen to someone. Not passively, where it's going in one ear and out the other, right? But actively. And then I want you to share this with someone in your life with whom you want to develop a better listening relationship and then talk about it. All right, let's talk about the problem. What is the problem in our relationships? Because this is why people come to therapy. There's a problem. They're in pain. It's emotional pain most of the time. Mental pain, emotional pain, they're connected. It's not the same thing, but they're connected, but they're in pain. And what is the root cause of all emotional pain? Not necessarily mental pain, emotional pain. It's disconnection. This is why people seek therapy. This is why families disintegrate. This is why people divorce. This is why adult children don't speak to their parents. This is why sometimes parents don't speak to their adult children. This is why people suffer internally. This is why. If I could just get this out there. I mean, the rest of the podcast, I hope, has great substance to it. But this alone, this is why people are suffering emotionally. It's disconnection. Humans are made for connection. We are the most social animals on the planet. And our systems of social interaction and connection are extremely complex. We form hierarchies. We form alliances. We form attachments with one another like no other living thing on the planet. So if that complexity is not met with connection, we experience a depth of emotional pain because we have the potential for such connection. And at the root of disconnection or connection, okay, the actual dynamic that makes humans capable of connecting or experiencing the pain or the freedom of disconnection is attachment, okay? Attachment is at the root of connection. So follow the stream. Emotional pain, the root of it is disconnection. 
So what we need to therefore address is the problem with disconnection. And the problem with disconnection is attachment. What does listening have to do with attachment? Hear me when I say this. Everything. That's why this is so important. Because listening creates attachment. And attachment creates connection. And connection creates satisfaction in life. Do you get it? That's why we're dealing with listening. It's that important. It determines with whom and how we attach. Okay, so let's talk about the pathway here. How did we develop our listening skills or our lack of listening skills? Well, let's talk about childhood. And you know, I'm a therapist and I'm a depth therapist. I'm a psychodynamic therapist, so we deal with childhood. I just recently, this is a sidebar, I recently got into this back and forth on Instagram with this person who posted this really funny meme about cognitive behavioral therapy. And it was sort of disparaging to CBT. And in the field, you know, it's like every other field. The cardiologists probably think they're better than the psychiatrists. And the neuroscientists think they're more advanced than the cardiologists. I mean, every field. Again, we're humans. We form hierarchies. Okay, in my field, CBT is respected, but kind of thought to be rather shallow and stale. Because it doesn't deal with, like, root causes and issues. It's sort of living on the surface. And yes, it's very empirically demonstrated to be effective, blah, 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 blah. We know. So this meme pops up on Instagram and this girl is basically, she. I think the, the person who runs the account is a female, but she posted this meme that, you know, was kind of disparaging to CBT and I had a little chuckle at it because I'm a depth therapist and, you know, it's a very different modality of treatment. And you should have seen the comments on here. I mean, people, CBT saved my life as a therapist, CBT. I'm like, wow. And I just watched as people, and this was the irony of it, formed tribal alliances around pro-CBT or against CBT. And then I couldn't help myself. I had to comment. I'm like, hey, folks, aren't we catastrophizing a little bit here, which is one of the cognitive distortions that CBT seeks to organize? It was very funny. You know, several people liked my comment. I'm like, let's actually use CBT as we're responding to the meme on CBT. Why did I get into this? Because I was talking about being a depth therapist and dealing with childhood. CBT doesn't really go into it. I, as a therapist, cannot imagine the purpose of doing therapy without talking about your childhood. I don't even know how, again, I, I know CBT, I use elements of CBT, but we on this podcast talk about childhood. So the question is, were you heard? Really heard? Was there space in your childhood environment, in your home, classrooms, wherever you spent your time, your grandmother's house, wherever you spent your time, was there space for you to be able to express yourself? Were adults actively listening? Now, actively listening to children, and I'm going to say a lot about this today, requires a lot of empathy and patience on the part of parents. Why? Because life could be moving very quickly. There's a lot to do, especially when there's more than one child. You know, only children have a very distinct advantage in that. I mean, they don't have siblings and they very often lament that, but they also have the full attention of one or both of their parents. That is in some ways a gift if your parents are present, okay? You have the full range of an adult arsenal of being present and empathic in an ideal situation. But if there's more than one kid, this is a tough call. There's not a lot of time to listen deeply and intently to every single child. You know, I was one of four. 
there were a lot of loud, opinionated, older voices, I'm the youngest, competing for attention in my home. So being heard was not really a thing. Also, my parents didn't value listening to children, not really, Um, not in the way that it would have been healing or helpful or forming of attachment. So let's normalize first that to be heard in childhood is actually hard. Now, very often, the person who hears the child, it could be the parent who has this as part of their personality structure. They tend to maybe have lower energy, it's slower energy, and they can really slow down enough to spend focused time listening to children. That may be part of their personality. A parent who is more upbeat, more type A, more moving and shaking, you know, that parent will probably not have the natural tendency to slow down long enough to listen to children. They're going to use, and I'm going to talk about this later, a system of hearing in the brain that works more on assumptions than it does on active, slow listening. So kids are going to have a variety of adults in their lives who can either listen or not listen whether it's life experience or life circumstance or just personality. People tend to devote more or less time to listening. But the question for us is, if we are experienced listeners, if we're skilled listeners, if listening is, you're already thinking, okay, great, this is really something I need to work on. Ask yourself, were you heard as a child? Because this is actually where listening starts. Why? Because if we were heard as children, listening was modeled for us. And modeling is how children learn. This is the reason why parents say, do as I say, not as I do. Because children will do as you do. Children learn through modeling. And this is a really important piece. The real issue here is watching someone listen. And I'll talk in a moment about being heard and what that does to the nervous system and what it's like to feel heard. But we have to watch people listen to learn how to listen. Watching our mother listen to other siblings, watching our father listen to our mother, watching our grandfather listen to our father. We would have watched someone and you know it when you see it, right? They make eye contact. They settle in. They breathe. They're soaking in whatever is coming at them. My model for listening was actually outside of my family system. It was someone actually for whom I worked. And he was just that type of person. When you were speaking, you were the only person in the room. And he responded from such a deep place of understanding because he had learned how to listen. And he was, of course, a father figure to me. He was much older than me. But I remember not only being heard by him, which was frankly, as a child who was rarely, if ever, heard in my own home, it was anxiety inducing because as soon as he started listening to me, I became aware of what I was saying. You know, it it can be anxiety inducing when someone's really listening to you. And I see this all the time in therapy. You know, all of a sudden things slow down and I've got to really try and express what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking because someone's really listening. So your model for listening as a child may have not been your parents, particularly if there was a lot of siblings, a lot of movement in the house. Life maybe didn't slow down long enough for that, or maybe it did at bedtime. Maybe that was when you could really talk and really open up and it was quiet and it was calm and you could be heard. But if you think about it, maybe you can remember watching someone who really listened. If you had someone like that in your life, that was your model. 
So I want you to hold that in your mind. That was the model of listening. Now let's talk about the emotional experience of being heard. Okay. Think about what it takes to express yourself. Now, I am not a neuroscientist. I know enough of neurology to know what systems of the brain are activated when we're trying to express ourselves, okay? But think about how complex that actually is. We are translating inner experiences, which are experienced as thoughts, feelings, gut feelings, intuitions. They're all intangible and they're all nonverbal. Thoughts are verbal, but the rest of it is not verbal. They're just sensory inner world experiences. And we're trying to put that into words, into language. And this is what language is for. The sole purpose of language is to communicate human experience. And animals have their own languages and they're communicating their own animal lived experience. But for us, we use language. That's what I'm doing right now with this podcast. I am trying to frame and translate and express an inner experience of listening to you in words you will understand. Now, expressing what we think, feel, know, need, all of it, it's, it's an art. It's a skill, but it's also an art. And this is actually where art lives. The artist translates human experience, whether that's inspiration, death, birth, majesty, heartbreak, anger, war, whatever it is, love, they translate that into song, poetry, dance, painting, sculpture, architecture, story, film. And that's why we seek out art, because it's giving us a place where we are experiencing ourselves. But when you have a conversation happening between two people, and I do conversation between two people for a living. This is what talk therapy is. We're now talking about one person, the client, trying to form words around their inner experience, sometimes for the first time. Yes, I do adult therapy, sometimes for the first time. And for the first time, someone is sitting in the room patiently, curiously, compassionately, empathically listening. I can't tell you how many times I have been told, and this is these are the gifts of my career, that what someone is experiencing in the room is the first. This is the first time I have ever been heard, Vanessa. This is the first time I've ever been respected. This is the first time someone has ever empathized with me. Folks, these people are in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, their 60s. My heart breaks wide open. How do we get through life? How much emotional pain are we in before we sit with somebody? It doesn't have to be a therapist, but one person who says, I'm here for you. I'm listening. This is how important it is. So what do we do? We seek out art. We seek out the divine. We seek out experiences that are somehow reflecting our experience back to us. But this is why I wanted to do this podcast today, because if you can be a good listener, you can give someone that gift every day of the week and twice on Sunday. What a gift you give when you listen. So 
The vocal partner, <laughs> the loud partner in communication is the speaker. And we could talk all day about that, the kind of self-knowledge you have to have, emotional expression. Okay, that's chapter three and chapter 12 of my book. Confrontation, the ability to confront effectively. That's chapter 10. There are both sides to the relationship, but the speaker is not the one communicating. The listener is too. And what are they communicating? You matter. Your thoughts matter. Your feelings matter. Your person, who you are, matters because I am paying attention. And this starts in childhood. You know, when we are young, like babies, before we even have memory, we have ways of expressing ourselves, but we lack vocabulary. And there are, and speech pathologists and child developmental psychologists use these kinds of concepts, but there are two different types of vocabulary in the English understanding and language understanding. And there's the receptive vocabulary and the expressive vocabulary. The receptive vocabulary you have is how many words you recognize. Okay, the expressive vocabulary that you have is how many words you can use. Now, remember back in your school years, you would learn a word and then what was the next task after you learned the word, what it meant and how to spell it? Use it in a sentence. Now, why did they do that? Because they were training your receptive vocabulary first. What is the word? Right? How do you spell it? What does it mean? Now you have an understanding of the word, but they wanted to translate that into expressive vocabulary. So what do they say? Use it in a sentence. Make it part of your lexicon. Make it part of your personal vocabulary. That's why we quote unquote use it in a sentence. Okay? So I'm going to run through, and I'm making a point here. I'm going to run through the age that children are and how many receptive words they have and how many expressive words they have. Okay, so one to two years, and those of you who have raised children, you know this, okay? Receptive vocabulary, about 200. Children can recognize about 200 words between one and two years. How many words can they speak? About 50, up to two years. Now, again, these are averages. Some of you are gonna be like, my child knew 6,000 words at age two. Okay, congratulations, Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> you have an amazing child. But this is an average, okay? Two to three years, the receptive vocabulary, check this out, jumps up to 3,000 words. That little brain is amazing. 200 words to 3,000 words in a year. Expressive vocabulary goes from 50 words to 425. 425 words. From three to four years, 4,200 words, receptive vocabulary. Expressive vocabulary, 950 words. Notice the difference between what you can hear and what you can say. What you will recognize, that's your receptive vocabulary, the words you recognize, you know the meaning, and the words you use to express yourself. Throughout the lifespan, there is an enormous discrepancy between these two things. And there are many reasons for that. Four to five years, 7,600 words in the receptive vocabulary, meaning you will recognize and know the meaning of 7,600 words on average, expressive, 1,750 words. And it goes up from there, okay? Now, to put this in perspective, the average expressive vocabulary of an adult is 20,000 words. That means you use, you speak about 20,000 words in your vocabulary, but your receptive vocabulary is 
40 to 42,000 words by age 20. So when you were one or two, you recognized about 200 words. By the time you're 20, you recognize on average 42,000. Pretty amazing. You went from being able to speak about 50 words, and many of them aren't mama, dada, nose, knee, elbow, cookie, <laughs> right? You went from 50 words to 20,000. The average adult, again, all of you wordsmiths out there, I have an average vocabulary. Okay, good for you. Again, Shakespeare. But the average adult speaks 20,000 words. Now, just in case you felt good about yourself, <laughs> let me offer some healthy humbling. The English language has about 1 million words. So on average, the adult who speaks English knows about 0.04% of their own language. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. But don't worry, we'll cover self-expression another time. And really, if you have 20,000 words, hopefully you've got, you know, ways of expressing yourself that are accurate and skillful. So what is the purpose here? Well, when you're talking about a little teeny tiny human being who has 50 words or 400 words or 900 words or 2,000 words, it's clear why when adults listen to children, it can be a frustrating and patience testing experience. Because you have, by the time you're 20, and most people who have children are older than 20, most, not all, but most, you have 20,000. So it is a real act of empathy and compassion and patience to listen to a child. Now, what do I mean by empathy? Folks, imagine having a whole world inside you that is unfolding, Every single day, your mind, your brain is flooded with new experiences, new people, new lessons, new words, you, and you already feel all the emotions, the entire range of emotions are present in infants, okay? So you have an entire emotional world, but your mental world is expanding exponentially every single day and you have 400 or 900 words you can use to get it out. It kind of puts temper tantrums in a different light, doesn't it? That's what I mean by empathy. Children have a whole world inside of them and they don't have language. Now imagine you have only so many words or you have no words or few words for emotion. That's a big part of human experience. It's not just what we're thinking, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing. It's how we feel about it. And imagine, and a lot of us did, we grew up without words to express emotion. So what do we do when we don't have words to express emotion and we're children? We act them out because we want to express them. So imagine having no words for emotion and the adults in your life are not listening for emotions. Imagine that. Don't you think you'd freak out or shut down too? You have no words to express it and no one is listening for it. In other words, when you throw yourself on the floor, you're four years old, your kid throws himself on the floor. Temper tantrums, right? The last one I saw was in a Target. Just, I mean, full on. The mom was like, oh my God, <laughs> poor thing. But imagine no one there is offering any compassion or empathy for the emotion that is being expressed in the tantrum. Or a kid shuts down. They hang their head. Remember, expressive language isn't just words. 
It's also facial expressions, body gestures, hand gestures, can be silence. We communicate a lot with silence. Posture, eye contact, the tone of the voice, the volume of the voice, all of these things are how we communicate. Imagine, and some of you are like, I don't have to imagine it, that was my childhood. You have no words for emotion and no one is paying attention to any way that you are communicating emotion. If that was your experience, my friend, you were not heard. And what happens to us when we're not heard? Let's talk about the emotion of frustration briefly. The emotion of frustration is experienced when we exert energy and we're not getting any movement. It's not budging. Think about trying to get a lid off a jar. You trip, you twist, you twist, you twist. It's not moving. Ugh, you get frustrated. That's what frustration is. Imagine the frustration in a child who doesn't have words to express emotion or really doesn't have words for their inner world and no one's listening for it anyway, right? No one's trying to discern. Okay, look, you just shut down. Are you angry at me? No one's trying. Imagine the frustration that takes hold of our bodies and just lives there. How does that color our relationships going forward? Now, let's talk about what happens when we are heard. We've all had this feeling. I see it all the time in therapy. The nervous system calms and we relax. We're trying to piece together words. We're using language, this and that, this word, that word, into some kind of coherent sentence. And we're trying really hard. Again, we're exerting energy Think about trying to get the lid off the jar. We're exerting energy to make someone else know what is happening inside of us. Why? Because that is how we feel connected. Remember, attachment is at the root of connection. We want to attach. We're desperately trying to connect. So we're putting the effort into communicating. And when someone else tries as hard as we are to hear us, we're matched and we feel connected. We're trying to get it out. Someone else is really trying to hear it. Wow. That is a beautiful dance. Even if they don't get it right, they're trying. I don't always get it right. Sometimes in therapy sessions, I'll reflect back what I hear people saying, okay, I think what I'm hearing you say is blank. And the client might say, well, kind of, <laughs> not quite. And now I'm really in it. Now I'm really listening and I might say, okay, help me out. I think I'm getting it, but I need more help. And I'm leaning and I'm really paying attention on every level I can because I want them to feel heard. Number one, I can't do therapy if I don't know what the issues are. So I can't lead the conversation. I can't follow the conversation well if I can't really hear what's going on. And two, they're paying me to be heard. That's my job. So I get real dogged about it. If I try and reflect back, it's almost like I'm mad at myself. Dang it, I didn't get it right. <laughs> but the experience of being heard is a beautiful thing. And it's also one that we are more likely to repeat, meaning really listening and hearing other people, if one, we saw it modeled, and two, we felt it in our bodies. Now, conversely, we might become great listeners if we were never heard. And I think that's more my story. And maybe that's true of some of you. I know the pain of not being heard. I know the pain of being interrupted, shut down, contradicted, shamed into silence. I mean, all of these ways that we shut children down, I've felt all of that in my body and I know how painful that is. And I don't want people to feel that way. Maybe that's why I became a therapist. I'm going to listen to people all day long. 
All right, so that's childhood. Now, what about adulthood? What neural pathways affect how we listen as adults? Well, I would pose this question to you. How well do you listen to yourself? Now, I know that stopped some of you in your tracks. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she was like, Vanessa, you can't listen to your podcast while you're cooking. Like you stop too often. There's just always a moment where you're like, well, dang it, you just stop. So maybe that just stopped you. Do you listen to yourself? In this podcast, you know that I focus on the relationship with the self as the basis for mental and emotional and psychological healing. That is it. It is your relationship with yourself. This forms your basis for outward relationships with others. The relationship with the self is the foundation. So let me ask you, how well do you listen to yourself? Do you cut off your heart when it is speaking with rational thought? Do you interrupt your more tender thoughts with things to do? Let's get busy. Stay busy. Do you silence your voice out of shame? Do you stop what you're doing and pay attention to your inner voice when you're in pain? Do you even know your inner voice? Do you know what it sounds like? Have you ever heard it? Do you have a relationship with the voice within you? Is it respectful? Is it intimate? Do you know the voice of joy within you or the voice of pain, sorrow? Do you allow it? Or is your internal voice a voice that your ego needs to approve of? Do you judge it? Does your internal voice need to be a voice that only speaks in rational thoughts? I love when clients are in my office and they're trying to describe their emotions and they say things like, well, I mean... I feel blah, 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 but it's not rational. And I, you know, sometimes I'll jump in and say, well, it's not rational. It's emotional. Keep going. <laughs> Friends, it's fair to say that they're usually not swimming in the same pool. They're not hanging out in the same boat. Rational thought and emotional experience do not always go hand in hand. Okay. So that's your internal listening. And we really, I could talk for hours on that, your relationship with your own voice. But what about listening to others? Well, here are some interesting facts to consider. You know, Corn Perry, anyway, don't look it up if you, unless you're really interested in consulting firms. But they've actually done really, really good work over the years on the neurology of leadership. And they wrote this article on listening that when I was researching some for this article, I looked on some of the you know neurobiology of listening, but I thought, man, that's just going to get us too much in the weeds in neuroscience. And I don't think that's inspiring. But this article was great. And it's from their website. And it says this, quote, active or empathic listening is when the listener suspends his own frame of reference and fully attends to the speakers. The listener avoids engaging in immediate judgment, prejudice, or assumptions, rebuttal, or criticism. He is open not only to the spoken word, but also to the body language and emotional subtext. He does not try to evaluate or solve problems. I'm sorry, men in the audience, please hear this. He does not try to evaluate or solve problems in the moment. I know all my ladies just laughed out there, but simply restates to the speaker 
what he believes he is hearing so as to confirm the mutual understanding of both parties. Now, I know that the pronouns here are male, but apply this to yourself, okay? Let's be adults. Now, this is listening for leadership, but there is absolutely nothing here that I read that does not apply to close or even intimate relationship. The key points are this, avoid interrupting, judging, or assuming, or solving. When you are listening, actively listening, now is not the time to solve the problem. That is introducing rational thought into an emotional exchange, unless you are problem solving together. But if you are listening to someone's inner experience, now is not the time to quote unquote solve problems. I would add on, when we are truly listening, we are not correcting someone mentally or verbally. We're not arguing. We're not even disagreeing. But Vanessa, what if I do disagree? Okay, notice that in your thoughts and keep listening. Why? Because you will probably find that you do agree on some points. The piece goes on. Quote, that kind of listening is difficult to master. In part, because it is at odds with today's frenetically multitasking, information overloaded, distraction driven world. But perhaps more importantly, and this is so interesting, listen up, more importantly, because it runs counter to the way our brains have evolved to function. And now, friends, we get into the real challenge of listening. Your brain is not wired to actively listen. Back to the article, quote, Our listening brain is wired to do exactly what active listening discourages. It is wired to evaluate input, predict outcomes, make judgments, and perform triage all in a moment-to-moment basis. That mode of functioning, according to recent thinking in cognitive neuroscience, evolved as the brain's strategy to use its finite neural capacity efficiently. Okay, so what is this basically saying? It's basically saying that your brain is hardwired now simply to function efficiently in the world, to hear a little bit and fill in the gaps, to recognize patterns and then make assumptions. That's how the brain works. And if you have a brain and you're listening to this podcast, both would be true, then you won't recognize that. Yeah, yeah, that does feel true. This is an interesting quote. Rather than waiting to be activated by sensations, the human brain is constantly generating predictions that help interpret the sensory environment in the most efficient manner. This is Harvard Medical School neuroscientist Kestutis Kevaraga. (laughs) Very cool name. In a 2007 paper, Top-Down Predictions in the Cognitive Brain, he goes on, quote, there are many statistical regularities in our environment and the brain uses them to shortcut processing in similar future situations. The primary principle is that the brain extracts coarse gist information rapidly and uses it to generate predictions that help interpret the input. It continuously employs memory of past experiences to interpret sensory information and predict the immediately relevant future. Okay, lots of words. (laughs) I hope you were listening. But what does that all mean? It means that the brain, in order to function efficiently, fills in the gaps. We are constantly sensing and listening for patterns so that our brain from past experience can move a little bit more quickly. Imagine getting directions and you had to learn right and left for the first time every single time. That would be 
tedious and it would be totally inefficient. But your brain memorized right and left. And so when you get directions, you're filling in the gaps, right? That's my finger snapping, right? You're, you're, you're listening, but you are making assumptions and predictions with your brain appropriately to fill in the gaps so that you can get where you're going. We do that all the time in a number of ways. So what does that mean for us as listeners in relationship? It means that very often we're listening sort of in a half and half way. Half we're hearing what the person is saying and half we're filling in the gaps with assumptions, judgments, and we're plugging in our own experienced patterns of life. And this is why listening is so dang hard. Do you get it? It runs contrary to the way your brain works. So if you're out there thinking, oh man, you know, I don't really know I'm a good listener. I want you to soothe yourself with this information. It makes sense that we struggle with listening. It's hard. It's not the way our brains evolved to take in the environment. We're half listening and half filling in the gaps all the time. But when we're actively listening in relationship, that doesn't work. You know, the other day I, you know, Jared's abroad, he's working over in Europe. So if you're in Europe, Jared's over there. Um, and we had a little conflict on the phone and our time on the phone is so precious because of the time difference. You know, we just, we have our scheduled calls and we got into something and I had voiced a hurt feeling about something that happened in my life, not anything that had to do with him. And Jared responded with frankly, a very rational response, but that rational response in my brain registered as a very invalidating pattern in my mind. And it's not what he meant. It's what I heard. And I heard myself say this. I said, you know, when you say blank, I hear you say blank, 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 and all this really negative stuff. And he said on the phone, Vanessa, that's not fair at all. I didn't say any of that. And it really got my attention. And I thought, hmm. And then I did the research for this podcast. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I filled in the gaps. And what did I do? I took my own narrative, my own pain, my own wounds of not being heard and why I wasn't heard and the reasons why people invalidated me and my whole perspective, my whole narrative. And I put it on what he said and what he said then created a conflict. Now, Jared, if he were on this podcast, would say, well, I could have said that differently. Yes, he's very humble. He would acknowledge that. But I could have listened differently. And there we had the conflict. So, yes, I make the same mistakes. We fill in the gaps with our lived experiences. And that's why we don't hear people. That is the primary obstacle to listening is your own assumptions, your own narratives, the patterns that you have you know, validly lived out in your life, but you're plugging them in in the present and they may not be appropriate. They may not be relevant to the situation. Some of the obstacles we have for listening is we really just don't know how. We don't know how. We've never seen it modeled. We don't know what it's like to face someone, make eye contact, take a breath and open up the mind and the heart. Some of us, our biggest obstacle is we're just too busy. We're distracted. We're not committed to communication in the way that we could or should be because our lives are going way too fast for that. Some of us have a fear of intimacy. I mean, listening is intimate. 
And being the listener is actually quite vulnerable. To be present with and for another person as they communicate the range of their experience is scary for some of us. What if they're in pain? What if they're angry at us? There's a lot of fears of intimacy. That's literally all under the umbrella of intimacy and relationship. And so we avoid listening because we avoid intimacy. Some of us never developed the patience for listening, particularly with children, maybe with adults. We're so used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. I got it. I got it. Fill in the gap. I got it. Sufficient. I get it. I know what you're saying. Move on. Some of us really have a lack of empathy. We don't want to take the time to feel what another person is feeling long enough to hear it coming out of their own mouth. And then some of us, I think a big obstacle to listening is we need to control the interaction. Our perspective is the, the stream of the conversation. Our thoughts, our feelings, our opinions, that is the conversation. We do not have the ability to have an exchange of ideas, particularly ideas we don't agree with. We have to control the interaction. We don't want to hear what we don't want to hear. And we will only hear those things which we find meet our requirements for approval. And what is the experience on the other side of the relationship? It's not rocket science. They don't feel heard. <laughs> They're not going to feel heard. If we have to control the interaction, the content of the interaction, the structure of the interaction, first of all, we are not listening. Number one. And number two, it's going to break down connection. It's going to break down attachment. Folks, this isn't rocket science. You can follow the stream, right? Attachment creates connection. Connection creates satisfaction. At the root of attachment is your ability to listen to someone. Oh, now my relationships start to make sense. Yes, there's a mechanical aspect to this. There's a flow. Now, what are some of the considerations of listening? Well, you might get offended. You might listen to things that rub you the wrong way. You might hear things that you don't really want to hear from this person. Okay. You have a choice to make. We all have a choice to make. We can listen and support the relationship, or we cannot listen, and we fail to listen in any number of ways. We are too distracted. We shut the conversation down. We, with every manner of our body language, demonstrate that we are not listening. That's called stonewalling. Okay, we can do that, but we will lose connection and we will lose attachment. That's the consequence. That's it. We're human beings. We work a certain way. So we can do that. That's a consideration. Okay, if I'm not willing to listen to this, am I willing? Ask yourself, if I am not willing to, to hear this person out, then am I willing to sacrifice my connection? And am I willing to sacrifice the attachment? Because if you're saying outwardly, I do not want to hear this, then you are also saying I'm not going to be connected to you and I'm willing to let the attachment weaken. That is is the consequence. It doesn't go any other way. Over time, if we are not heard, we will lose connection and therefore attachment. It's not rocket science, just the way human beings are wired. But that's an implication. Now, some people we may find so offensive <laughs> so much of the time, we don't want to listen to them. Okay, then this is not, and they probably need to know that. Look, we're not that close. 
Or maybe they do know that. We're not that close. I'm not going to spend my time listening to you because so much of what you say offends me. Okay. That's a consideration. Getting offended is a consideration. The investment of time is a consideration. It takes time to listen. It takes time to really get it. Really get it. Sitting here thinking, my thoughts go, I hate the 50-minute session model. All of my therapists and future therapists out there, it's not enough time. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you can really get there. But sometimes, man, you're just getting there at 50 minutes and you got to end it. Anyway, sidebar. That's why I like doing longer sessions. But that's a, that's a consideration. You have to invest your time. That's why relationships take time. Now, sometimes we're listening for emotion and sometimes we're listening for content. If we're listening for emotion, that's what's going to connect us to someone else who's in distress. When we say things like, you're feeling sad, you're feeling scared, I know you're angry, all of a sudden we're now flowing together. We're connected. But if we're listening for content, that's what allows us to listen past the emotion and to what the person is actually trying to express. When is that important? Childhood. Children do not have the neurological ability to regulate their own emotions. They learn it, but they, they're not, we're not born with that. I mean, look at infants. They scream when they're angry, sad, scared, whatever they are. They just scream. We don't, we're not born with the ability to self-regulate. What's really difficult is when we're with an adult in an adult situation and the adult can't self-regulate because that's actually something that developmentally in an ideal way, we would learn how to do that throughout the lifespan. But a lot of what we're learning as adults is emotional self-regulation. Why? Again, we don't have emotional vocabulary, so we're still like children. We're still acting them out. So the more we develop an emotional vocabulary, the less likely we are to act it out. Sometimes in adulthood, we have to be able to listen past the emotion to the actual content. Like, I know you're screaming right now, but I think what you're upset about is that the garage door never got fixed. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So sometimes we're listening for emotion and sometimes we're actually listening for content. And that's something to consider because it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to do that with children. It's very hard to do that with adults. Now, what are the outcomes of listening? Greater connection. Now, that may be a positive or a negative. If you want more connection with this person, that's a positive. But if you don't, that's not necessarily positive. So listening is a powerful tool. We engage with others when we want to allow them to attach and connect to us. Now that could be for a moment. I mean, I give public speaking engagements on a very frequent basis. And when people come up to me, either in the midst of it, if we take a break, or certainly at the end, there's very often a line of people who wanna to talk to the speaker, that's normal. I have to be engaged in active listening with every single person who comes up to me. And I will not form relationships with these people, but for that moment, the positive outcome is they were heard. What's another outcome? You're going to have greater knowledge of the other person, and that may not always be what we want. Why? Because it shatters fantasy into reality. When we really start listening to people, we really start knowing them. And that, that can be a good thing. It can also be an uncomfortable thing. So these are things to consider. Ultimately, Communication itself is a dead-end enterprise if no one is actively or actually listening. You know, when I wrote the toolbox, I put listening as the first chapter of an active tool. I mean, the right mindset is very internal. It's your decision with yourself about who you're going to look at for accountability, yourself or the other person. 
It's always yourself first. That's the right mindset. But the second chapter is listening. Why? Because we can't go anywhere until we can actually listen. It's the only way to form authentic communication. It's the only way to form authentic connection. This is where the sacrifice of relationship can actually start to feel like a sacrifice because we're taking the time and the mental energy to suspend our own assumptions, which are usually connected to our own level of comfort. And we're insisting on patience within ourselves to actually listen. So what do we do? Make a decision about who you are going to hear. Who are the people in your life who need you to hear them? Who has asked you to hear them? Are there people in your life who have said, I don't feel like you're listening? Pay attention. Are those people who need you to be listening? Then choosing to listen more carefully means choosing to hear what is being said, not what your brain is programmed to fill in. All right, let's pause there. If you like this podcast, please write a review, share. That's our little three-step call to action. Like the podcast, give us a five-star review, and share the podcast. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are, listen to your own voice, and learn how to love that human being. Everything flows from there. Till next time. This podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, and edited by Jared Bentley. I'm Vanessa Londino, and you just listened to Substance, Not Psychobabble.